Welcome, and thank you for tuning into this week's episode of Maryland's Most Notorious Murders, where the most gruesome, the most bizarre, the most mind-boggling homicide cases in Maryland, they are discussed, they are examined, and they are profiled. For this season, season seven, the focus is on murder cases where the where um let's say like the murderer they pled not guilty by reason of insanity or not mentally competent to stand trial because of a history of documented mental illness and when i say mental illness i don't mean like the killer or the murderer they just had like some pent-up rage they had a bad day and they just got mad and they snapped one day. I don't mean like cases or, you know, homicide cases like that. No, for the most part, these killers for uh, this season, they were severely sick. I mean, mentally deranged. They had histories of well-documented mental illness. And they had at least one stay at mental institutions, but... They were somehow allowed to live and function in society when they showed clear signs that they probably should have been committed a long time ago. Now, mostly all of the murderers for this season, they have been sentenced indefinitely to Clifton D. Perkins, which is the only real maximum security mental institution that we have for the criminally insane in this state, meaning there's no real chance that they will ever be released back into society because their murders were so bizarre, so outlandish, so brutal, so pointless. And the murderer that I'm going to profile for this episode is what Wikipedia has technically labeled as a spree killer. I'm going to discuss the crimes and murders committed by 31-year-old Joseph Chester Palzinski Jr. And just like in all of the other episodes that are in this podcast, a portion will be dedicated to an unsolved homicide that needs special attention because basically not a lot, if anything, is going on with the case. It's just sitting there collecting dust. Last season... Because I profiled 10 unsolved homicides where the victims were female, it's only right that I pay the same amount of attention to the men. So for this season, all of the unsolved homicides that will be profiled, the victims will be males. And this episode's unsolved homicide is the shooting murder of 24-year-old Daniel Argueta Cordova. You know... Honestly, I'm going to tell you the truth. I almost didn't even include this killer in this season that, you know, where the focus is on mental illness, you know, mental illness cases or homicides where the murderer was found not guilty by not, um, was found not criminally responsible or not being mentally competent to stand trial or whatever. Because at first I didn't believe that Joseph Pelzinski was mentally ill. You know what I'm saying? I mean, parts of me still believe that he couldn't just take rejection and maybe he just snapped. But then when you look at the whole case, 
the whole scenario. When I did the research on this, you that you look at the whole big picture, the repeated stays in mental institutions, the prescriptions, everything, because something it just wasn't right with him mentally. And I know people that's from Baltimore. <clears throat> if you don't remember Pelzinski, I mean, come on. Seriously. I mean, you'll see why I included him in this episode or list of mentally ill murderers who should have been committed a long time ago. 31-year-old Joseph Chester Joe Pelzinski's his life started out normal enough, like most kids. I mean, he had a loving mother. He had a stable home life, although his father left when the family when Joseph was around like eight years old, and he never really redeveloped another relationship with his biological father he did have somewhat of a relationship with a stepfather and um he was raised in perry hall baltimore county but when joseph was 14 years old and a student at perry hall high school he had been standing on a school bus when suddenly the bus rear-ended another bus in the school parking lot like accidentally since Joseph had been standing up on the bus when this happened, he was tossed and thrown through a window and he landed on the floor like on a bus. This accident caused like a head injury and according to Joseph's mother, Joseph, who was also known as Joby, he was never the same after this accident. She said that according to articles for the Baltimore Sun, she said that Joseph started acting out he started getting into fights. He started having like major outbursts of rage that he had never shown before. During one of these emotional anger outbursts or tan temper tantrums or whatever you want to call it, where Joseph was threatening to kill everybody in sight, Joseph's mother, she took him to the hospital and he was diagnosed with a post-traumatic psychotic episode. And this was because young Joseph um, he had also found his stepfather's body after his stepfather had killed himself. So he was just going through a lot. Joseph's mother, she tried suing the Baltimore County school system for this bus accident, you know, and this like head injury that she said that caused Joseph to start acting crazy and everything. But of course, the bus shifted the blame somewhere else, probably because they said he was standing up on the bus. I mean, I don't know. I'm just speculating on that. And the case, eventually, like, the case was just dismissed and thrown out of court. But, like I said, according to Joseph's mother, Joseph was never the same after this accident. So, when Joseph turned 17, his sister died. And that made Joseph turn even more aggressive, even more angry, even more depressed, even more withdrawn. And he started directing his anger towards females in general. In 1987, Joseph did manage to graduate from Prairie Hall High School. And after high school, he started dating a 15-year-old girl. At first, Joseph seemed nice to her and polite to her. You know, everything was cool and like it always is in the beginning. But he started, you know, he, you know, everything just started changing. Um, according, the girl was 15. Think about it. You get approached by a dude. He's not even in high school anymore. He's, he's graduated high school. Um, 
he drove a Nissan 300ZX. I'm, I'm quite sure that had a lot to it. That his mother did buy him the car. And he had jet skis and all this stuff that his mother bought him. This 15-year-old girl, she probably felt safe and protected. Because Joseph also knew martial arts. He was into lifting weights and he was a bodybuilder. I mean, he wasn't an ugly dude. Um, he had little skills with electrician. He knew how to fix stuff. Um, soon, But soon after they hooked up, though, soon after he hooked up with this little, this 15-year-old girl, she started seeing signs that something just wasn't right with him. They went to a trip to Ocean City one day in um, July of 1987, and Joseph got mad and kicked and beat on her because she had been spending time with her friends instead of spending time with him. He was kicking her, punching her, choking her. He beat her so bad that she had contusions of her eardrum. Cuts and bruises all on her cheek, nose, bruised ribs, and contusions in her eye. I mean, that's a lot. So when the police were called, of course, and the cops showed up, Joseph tried his best to convince the girl not to say nothing to the police, but she still filed charges anyway. And after the police left, Joseph continued to threaten her, telling her, choose your death, drowning, choking, or beating. Seriously. I mean, once he even held a knife to her throat, Joseph also told her that he was going to kill her own family. Like, if she left him, if she, you know, left him by himself, and then she wouldn't come back to him. Still, Joseph was way too much for this girl. Even she knew that at 15, and she broke up with him gladly. Another girl, another teenager, I should say, she wasted no time in picking up where this girl left off, and she gladly took her place because, like I said, when you're young, you're in high school, and you got an older dude with his own car, especially, you know, the, the flashy lifestyle and all that, he's flirting with you, he's buying you gifts and, you know, all of this. You know, for most young girls, I'm not even going to lie, that's the ultimate recipe for them. That's basically all that, what they need, especially at that age. So Joseph, he meets this new young girl. Before long, he starts beating on her too because she wouldn't have sex with him. And she found out that he had been, that she had been taking birth control pills. Apparently he must've wanted her to get pregnant, but I don't know why do these type of dudes that want to get you pregnant, especially the ones that be beating on you, I never understand. But anyway, Joseph beat this girl so bad, he gave her a black eye. This girl was cool with Joseph's ex-girlfriend who she, uh, uh, his ex-girlfriend didn't really, she really didn't want him no more. So she told, she persuaded um, his current girlfriend to press charges against him and to get a restraining order. Like I said, she was just like, look, it's done. I'm, you know, she wasn't taking that beating lightly. So Joseph's new girlfriend, she did just that. Eventually, Joseph was convicted for beating her, even though he had pled not guilty by reason of insanity, and he got two years of supervised probation. Joseph still had to face the other charges of assault for beating his first girlfriend, and for those charges, he did get two years in prison, even though he had pled not guilty by reason of insanity for beating on her too. While Joseph was locked up, he got a psychiatric evaluation from the prison doctors, and he received an official diagnosis of bipolar disorder and depression. Joseph was prescribed lithium, which is a powerful mood stabilizer. I mean, 
I used to be locked up with people who was on that and it makes you anyway <laughs> honestly it makes you drowsy and anyway and moody but Joe in 1991 Joseph was released from prison even though he spent time in Spring Grove Hospital in Catonsville struggling with his anger and his emotions and his mental illness Joseph was now 22 and this dude was still fucking around with high school girls like Kells Joseph hung around at high schools and there he met another 17 year old girl they started dating but soon after that you guessed it Joseph stuck to his M.O. and started beating on her too during an argument one day it just so happened that they were on school grounds at the same time he decided he wanted to zap out so the police were called and Joseph was arrested again for beating his girlfriend when Joseph was locked up on December the 16th 1991 Joseph managed to escape from jail and he made it all the way to Idaho but on January the 17th the same uh, 1992 Joseph got caught and barricaded himself in an apartment in Idaho and said that he would shoot anybody that approached him Joseph stayed locked in that apartment for 16 hours before the police came in with tear gas because they had enough of him. The police were able to arrest Joseph again with no issues and they flew his ass right back to Maryland to face even more prison time. So after Joseph came home from serving time for all of that, the now 27-year-old hooked up with another high school student, a 17-year-old who wasted no time, who he wasted no time in beating on her too. Like he was not scared of jail or prison. This was just something he was just going to do. He could not control his emotions. Joseph's excuse every single time was, oh, I'm bipolar. You got to excuse it because I got a mental illness. You know, it's, 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 or it's too much of the medication they're giving me, or it's not enough of the medication they're giving me. It's the lithium, you know, it, it's my bad, you know, it's just part of me. <laughs> when the girl's father started seeing that his daughter was, was getting, you know, he saw his, his daughter with bruises and marks and stuff all on her, and he kind of figured what was going on, he confronted Joseph and asked him just like, what the fuck is going on? And Joseph ended up beating up her father. He ended up beating up her father so bad that he sent him to the hospital, to the emergency room with four broken ribs. Can you imagine this? And Joseph was bold enough to still continue to beat on the girl, choking her and slamming her to the ground after she told Joseph that she wanted to spend Christmas with her father and not with him and his family. Every time Joseph faced these domestic violence charges, he always had enough sense to ring up his disability or his mental illness, telling these girls that he was technically legally insane, that he wasn't really responsible for his actions, and he's really good at convincing people, you know, and judges of how his viewpoint is. Joseph would constantly tell the girls that he could kill them and legally get away with it because he was mentally ill. Does that sound like mentally a mental illness to you? The girl's father pressed charges anyway against Joseph for assaulting him, and Joseph was arrested again. For this particular charge, Joseph received probation, and Joseph moved on to yet another 17-year-old girl. 
when that relationship ended, Joseph moved on to a 16-year-old girl this time during the summer of 1996. He did the same thing to her like he did all the other girls before her. Joseph wined and dined her, bought her presents, gave her money, did this, did that, lied about his age, talking about, you know, oh, I got some stuff in my background. It might be some assault charges and stuff like that, but, you know, that's all in the past. That's over and done with, you know. That, that's that's kind of like not me. I changed all that. But because Joseph wasn't ugly, seemed like he was nice. Seemed like he was cool. You know, he was in the weights, and he drove that 300. So, like most girls would have done, she gave him a chance. Her family, however, they didn't like Joseph. And when her father found out about his past of beating on young girls and stuff like that, and he told his daughter about it, when Joseph's girlfriend, when she brought up the subject to him, Joseph showed his true colors in true fashion and started beating on her too. Her parents, they ain't play that, and they encouraged her to press charges, which she did. Joseph gets locked up again for domestic violence. I lost track of how many times. And he heard he heard that the girl was going to, you know, testify against him, go to court and all that. And he, they just eventually just broke up. When Joseph got out of prison in 1998, his life completely changed when he met who I'll call Tiffany. The, she was the oldest out of all of his girlfriends. And Joseph met the 20-year-old at a grocery store. They managed to stay together off and on for two years. And in the beginning, like always, the relationship was okay. And Tiffany later told reporters for the Baltimore Sun that at some points in her life, Joseph was very good to her and her young son. Um, she encouraged him. He basically encouraged her to get off drugs and he encouraged her, you know, to stay working and stuff like that and then keep stable employment, which is cool, you know, but true to form, Joseph started beating on her too. They had been together for two years, but after Tiffany got off drugs, she got a better job and she started taking care of herself. She started looking good. She started feeling better about herself, started getting her self-esteem back. And like most woman beaters, Joseph didn't like that. And he would throw temper tantrums on a daily basis. Tiffany put up with all of this at first, but the last straw was when they apparently had, like, during a fight, Joseph admitted to cheating on her. I mean, you know, I ain't gonna lie. For women, we can take the physical stuff, but that emotional shit, mm-mm. That's, that's a little bit much. So she yelled, like, what I, I ain't gonna lie, that's something I would have done. She, her defense, or well, she yelled back, they fighting, you know, she was like, okay, I'm cheating to you, whatever. So, it was a lie, but just to hurt him back, she said that, and they left out, when she came back, um, they had, I mean, he gave her a black eye, they left out, when they came back, he had destroyed, like, all her clothes, everything she owned, like, some straight out, waiting to exhale type shit, everything. And that was the last straw. That's when you'd be like, you know what? I, I, I'm, I'm done. I'm done. So that was the breaking point. In March of 2000, she had had enough. And like the others, she filed assault charges against him too. Because she went to get her stuff or whatever. And they fought. But anyway, Tiffany, she had gotten close to Joseph's mother. And when Tiffany told his mother about her intentions of filing charges on Joseph... 
Joseph's mother's, she tried to convince her not to go through it. She even told her that if you do this, I'm telling you, you're going to be reading about Joseph in the papers. His mother knew he was going to flip out. Trust me. She was like, you're going to be reading him about, reading about him in the papers if you file these charges. Tiffany filed those charges anyway, and Joseph was arrested on Saturday, March the 4th, 2000, charged with assault again. The next day, this look at this, the next day, Sunday, March the 5th, 2000, Joseph's mother paid a $7,500 bond and got him out of jail. Now, like, why would you do that if you knew he was going to zap out? The, ooh, and when Joseph got out of jail this time, he had one thing on his mind. Revenge. On Monday, March 6, 2000, Joseph convinced a neighbor to buy him a shotgun and a rifle. He asked his mother at first. She gave him everything else, but his mother for this one, she was like, no. Because Tiffany knew that Joseph had been um, bailed out of prison and would most likely still try to contact her, Instead of her staying at her parents' house, where she knew Joseph would come looking for her, Tiffany had been staying temporarily with a, a co-worker, uh, 50-year-old Gloria Jean Schenck, and her husband, 49-year-old George Sylvester Schenck. Tiffany had confided to Gloria what had been going on in her relationship, and Gloria and her husband had offered to help Tiffany out. Somehow, Joseph found out where Tiffany was, and when he showed up to Gloria's home looking for Tiffany, he walked through an unlocked sliding glass. Basically, when he showed up looking for her, uh, he was like, you know, come on, let's go. Um, she, Tiffany refused because her mind was made up. She wanted nothing to do with him, and she was ready to move on. He left, but when... Uh, Tiffany wouldn't come out and talk to him two hours later he walked through an unlocked sliding glass patio door saying Tiffany get up you're going and this time he had a gun with him um and when uh Gloria when the, the couple when they tried to prevent Joseph from taking her taking Tiffany he shot and killed them both when the couple's neighbor 42 year old David Myers he heard the gunshots, and he ran over to try to help uh, uh, Tiffany, who was struggling and, you know, wrestling with Joseph. Joseph pointed his gun at him and shot him, too, ending his life. David, who was engaged and had planned to marry, to get married that May, died in his fiancée's arms. After shooting and killing three people in less than five minutes, Joseph forced Tiffany in his mother's minivan, and they drove off. He drove to a wooded area where he actually put a ring on Tiffany's finger and proposed to her, saying that, you know, I admit it's, the timing is wrong, but would you marry me? <laughs> Tiffany later told reporters that she said, yeah. I mean, wouldn't you? What's she going to say? After she had just seen him shoot three people? <laughs> the next day, Wednesday, March the 8th, 2000, Joseph realized that he needed another vehicle that was not his mother's car. So in an attempt to carjack another car, 36-year-old Jennifer Lynn McDonald, who was a pregnant mother of a two-year-old girl, 
was shot in the head when one of the bullets from Joseph's gun ricocheted. Jennifer, who was from Jamaica, was shot and killed right in front of her family on Ebenezer Road as they drove to church. Ain't that something? A bullet also grazed the cheek of a two-year-old. Well, it basically hit the car seat and pieces of the car seat or whatever lodged in his... It basically, he severely damaged a two-year-old as he sat in another passing car. <laughs> and instead of just driving to church, Jennifer's husband ended up speeding off to Franklin Square Hospital where she later died. And the two-year-old ended up having to have his whole jawbone reset. <laughs> Since Joseph wasn't able to get another vehicle in that carjacking attempt, later he was able to carjack an 81-year-old woman who fortunately wasn't hurt, although he did tie her up. The, the whole time Tiffany was with him, and after he got that woman's car, he drove Tiffany to the L Ranch Motel in on Pulaski Highway in Essex. As soon as Joseph got a room and turned on the TV, he was fascinated when he saw himself and his crimes all on TV, and he realized that he still had left his guns in the car that he had just stole. So, Joseph wasn't taking any chances. So, he, taking Tiffany with him, he walked out to the car to get the guns. When he did this, Tiffany saw a police car close to the parking lot, and she decided to make a run for it. Instead of shooting her or running after her, Joseph ran off in some woods, and that set off the biggest manhunt Merlin has seen since Dante Carter escaped from the courthouse, or when Harold Benjamin Dean, y'all remember him? Escaped from the then 21 million supposedly escape-proof Supermax. Remember when he squeezed through his bars or whatever? Baltimore County set up barriers all throughout the Bowley's Quarters neighborhood, shutting it completely down. Somehow, Joseph got a train to Baltimore, got a train in Baltimore, made it to Virginia, where on Friday, March the 8th, March the 10th, 2000, he broke into a house in Virginia, stole some more guns, and a van out of the out of a home's um home's driveway. When that van broke down in uh, Woodford, Virginia, that night. Joseph pulled one of those guns out and kidnapped 53-year-old William Lewis Terrell and ordered him to drive back to Baltimore in his dark green Dodge Ram pickup truck. Now, this man was a Jehovah Witness and an elder at that. I'm speaking from experience when I say that they are some of the most calmest people in the world that you could deal with. And this man relied on his faith 1,000% as he drove Joseph back to Baltimore, praying with the man. Right in White Marsh, they stopped at the shopping center where Joseph ordered William to go into a Best Buy and a Target where he got food and stuff that Joseph would need to survive living out in the woods. They prayed, they talked. Uh, the man later said, you know, gave, told reporters that Joseph knew that this was not going to be a good ending. He just kind of knew it. They made it to Joseph's neighborhood between um, the hours of 8 p.m. and 11.50 p.m. 
where they drove around trying to get through the barriers that the police had set up in the neighborhood. And instead of Joseph, um, you know, just trying to get out quick, he did kind of try to avoid detection and he just drove around. You know, they had barriers set up all throughout uh, the neighborhood of Boley's quarters and on uh, by jo Joseph's apartment on Carrollwood Road and close to his mother's house. Eventually, Joseph left the man unharmed. They even hugged and everything before they left, before Joseph took off and got out of the truck. The dude actually stayed there, parked less than a mile away from Joseph's apartment for over three hours until the police eventually found him still sitting in his truck at around 3.30 a.m. That man never did call 911, not one time. After Joseph left William, after Joseph left William Truck, even with police all throughout the Bowley's Quarters neighborhood looking for Joseph, that same day, Friday, March the 17th, 2000, Joseph made it to Tiffany's mother's home on Lane Street in Dundalk, where Tiffany's mother, her boyfriend, and his 12-year-old son were all in the home. Tiffany's mother's boyfriend's 12-year-old son, they. He wasn't really into the news. He ain't really know what was going on. And he let Joseph in the house. And for the next 97 hours, Joseph held Tiffany's family hostage in that house. Some reports say that he shot his way in. And some other reports say that, you know, the son let him in. Anyway, the police wouldn't let nobody in or out of the area. Police couldn't leave for work. I mean, people couldn't leave for work. Everybody was on edge. People who didn't listen to the police and they said, man, fuck that and violated the orders to come in out the neighborhood. They were arrested right on the spot. The police were not playing because Joseph had broken through these barriers twice with no problems. The police heard a dog. This is how serious the police was. The cops heard a, like a dog barking in the house or that block. And, and like the Baltimore County tactical squad was called in and guess what they did? They was not playing. They shot and killed the dog. They was like, look, nothing. We we not playing. They was not playing around. A couple times, Joseph did call hostage negotiators, and each time, he only wanted one thing, to talk to Tiffany. All I want to do is talk to Tiffany. I want to talk to Tiffany. I mean, I, I remember hearing this. I was like, you sound, oh, my God. He just kept telling them over and over that. He, he was like, I, I love her dearly, and I did not mean to kill those people. He, I mean, he did kept saying that, but check this out. The police wasn't having that. No, you can't talk to her. And the reason why they wouldn't is because they had a feeling that Joseph had already shown them how crazy he was, how unstable he was, and just how mentally dangerous he was. Maybe he would kill, like, Tiffany's mother or her family while she listened. Can you imagine that? I kind of believe he would have done something like that, too. That's how crazy he was, and they wasn't taking no chances. And I, I shouldn't even say crazy, that's how mentally sick he was. They had Tiffany hidden up in a Holiday Inn under 24-hour watch where they was not taking no chances. So for four whole days, 97 hours straight, Joseph held Tiffany's mother, Tiffany's mother's boyfriend, and her boyfriend's son hostage in that house until finally on Tuesday, March the 21st, 2000, Tiffany's mother put some Xanax in a glass of iced tea that Joseph was drinking 
and she and her boyfriend waited to see what would happen. Well, as it turned out, shortly after, Joseph began, like, nodding off, and eventually he fell asleep. The whole ordeal was caught on camera as Tiffany's mother came out of a window at around 10.20 p.m. 20 minutes later, Tiffany's mother's boyfriend came out. They both left the 12-year-old in the house who was sleeping on the kitchen floor. The police ain't waiting no more, and at 11 p.m., they stormed in the house, kid or no kid, and they ain't waiting and take no chances fooling with Joseph. According to articles for the Baltimore Sun, they said that they said that they saw Joseph reach for a gun, like that was on basically that he had in his lap. But according to them, after they after they saw him reach for the gun, they unloaded on him, killing him instantly. The police did manage to uh, rescue the kid who wasn't hurt at all. Shot 23 times with a 9mm and an MP5 Heckler and Cox submachine gun. Bullets hit Joseph in his head, his chest. Four bullets ripped through major arteries and another 19 bullets hit everything from the side of his face, smashed his jaw and ripped through the carotid artery in his neck. Joseph was hitting his chest, ribs, lungs, legs, arms, and at 11.05 p.m., he was pronounced dead. Uh, Joseph's mother, she felt that basically her son shouldn't have been killed because Joseph had allegedly been sleeping and he wasn't a threat to nobody when he was shot. And she told reporters, I wasn't happy about it. I'm only happy that Joe was sleeping when this happened and that she preferred him dead than being on death row or in prison for the rest of his life. Mm, okay. Only a mother knows, I guess. The police, the family of the victims, they all needed somebody to hold accountable. So since Joseph was already shot and killed, they turned their focus on the neighbor that had helped Joseph get the guns. This woman had no criminal record at all, but she was arrested and eventually she got 16 months in prison and was ordered to pay more than 456000 to the family of the victims. Tiffany's mother and boyfriend filed a lawsuit against Baltimore County Police basically saying that the police didn't do enough to protect them and their son, but the case was dismissed after it was determined that, um, that they basically had turned down offers from the police to having a police officer stay in the house with them or having a cop car parked in front of their house or having more police cars patrolling their neighborhood. Now, this is one of the biggest homicide cases in Maryland history that received national attention and it has been profiled on uh, the Investigation Discovery Network. Now, come on now. I ain't even gonna spend a whole bunch of time even discussing this. Who from Baltimore don't remember Joe Pelzinski? And if you don't, wow. Mm. I believe, uh, I honestly do believe and I do understand why they would not let him talk to uh, her on the phone like he kept demanding because he was crazy and that's what crazy mania, mania people or bipolar people do when they have an episode. They do mania weird stuff and I do think he would have shot them on live TV or whatever to get the attention that, you know, just because he had nothing to lose. I mean, he had to be to 
to even do something like this. I, I remember when he was shooting at the people in the street and, you know, stopping traffic, just random. <laughs> it, it was just the whole ordeal was horrific. I remember I had a supervisor at the time who worked in uh, bullies quarters and she could not come to work. <laughs> we ran muck in that place because she could not leave her house. She could not come to work because um, it was completely shut down. I also felt, I'm not even going to lie, I felt a little bit that the mom, Joseph's mother, was an enabler, big time. I saw her, did an interview one time, and she said, what, these girls must love getting hit? That was her exact word. She said, they keep coming back. She said, they keep coming back. <laughs> wow. I, I do remember her distinctly saying that. Um, I will agree that, <sighs> I don't, did he reach for the gun? This was the question that was on a lot of people's mind right after this happened for a period, like for a while, was, was it overkill by the police? Did he really, did Joseph Palazinski really reach for that gun? Or did y'all just was like, man, I ain't taking no chances. Fuck that. I'm just going to unload. 50-50, I believe on that. I believe once he heard, um, he didn't hear them coming out the window. But once, you know, the police came in, he probably set up and probably did reach. But they didn't give him a chance to do that because it was bullets flying everywhere. I mean, one shot could have done it. Y'all, come on now. 23 times. Seriously. <laughs> But also, let's discuss the Jehovah Witness part too. Wow. That's the power of religion, man. He had faith. That man had faith that nothing was going to happen. He drove him from Virginia to Baltimore in the middle of the night and had conversations with Joseph Pelzinski. Wow. That's faith. That's what you call faith right there. <laughs> I ain't going to lie to you. But anybody that's from, from Maryland or anywhere knows why this was selected as one of the most notorious uh, murders that has been committed in Maryland's history. And now it's time to move on to this week's episode, this week's unsolved episode. And like I say in every episode, although a lot of attention and focus is given to homicides in Maryland that were noteworthy and may or may not have received a lot of press, this podcast also shines a light on the many homicides that we see in this state that do not receive a lot of attention or they don't receive a lot of press. They're not on Murder, Inc. They don't, they're not on Fox 45 or nothing like that. These killings are so common in this state that they don't really always, you know, nothing is really, they nobody really hear nothing about them. Sometimes when a person gets killed in this state, you don't hear nothing else about it if you hear anything about it at all. And the number of homicides that are unsolved in this state is completely staggering. Homicide detectives obviously cannot do it all by themselves, especially when they are outnumbered and, you know, outworked and kept busy all the time. But what happens to the cases where nobody is talking? The cases where because of the victim's past, nobody is talking or... Detectives ain't really trying to solve the case because the victim, quote-unquote, they had it coming. Or what type, What happens to these type of murder cases where it seems like the killer simply just got away with murder? It just seems like literally nothing was done with these forgotten homicides. Not, be, not because nobody cares anymore, but sometimes because the public simply forgot all about them. We, it's like we have become immune to homicides in this state. 
well on this podcast although i do talk a lot about cases where they did receive a lot of notoriety and a lot of attention on the flip side a focus is also on, on homicides that did not receive the attention that des- that they have deserved and with that being said this episode's unsolved homicide is the shooting murder of 24-year-old Daniel Argueta Cordova. On November the 11th, 2008, around 8.24 p.m., police officers with the Charles County Sheriff's Department, they responded to a report of a naked male in the parking area behind a Lowe's Home Improvement Store in the 2500 block of Crane Highway in Wardorf, Maryland. Daniel, who was from Wardorf and was a cook at a local Outback Steakhouse, died from trauma to his upper body. When homicide detectives traced Daniel's steps leading to his murder, surveillance cameras in the store caught two men looking suspicious coming into the store, and in 2008, the police released photos of them to the public to try to identify them but nothing ever happened so if you have any information at all in this unsolved homicide please call the Charles County Crime Solvers which is 1-866-411-TIPS that number again is one 866 411 tips tips there is a reward of up to five thousand dollars for any information leading to an arrest and or a conviction for this unsolved homicide and you can remain anonymous people thank you for tuning in this week please be sure to subscribe to this podcast for updates on future spine tingling hair raising eye-popping, mind-boggling episodes. For paid subscribers, be sure to check out the real, the raw, the uncensored version of why I do what I do, how and why I got into true crime, the true crime books, why I write all of those, and why I decided to start a true crime podcast. A lot of people think that I just woke up one day and then out of nowhere, there's a podcast. But that is not true. There is a real therapeutic message to this world, this madness of gore and mayhem. I promise you. Just click on the past episode entitled, Why I Do What I Do, and you'll understand more about why I'm so into true crime. I also want to let my listeners know that for season one, uh, which was the the child murderer season, six of those episodes have been selected for film production, meaning... Production has officially begun on the video or documentary production version of these episodes. And the very first documentary produced by Savage Life Productions will be based off of the very first episode that was featured on this podcast. So tune in because the video version will be coming to you soon later this year. And while you're at it, check out the new website, MarylandsMostNotoriousMurders.com where you can access episodes one through six and Merlin is spelled MDS most notorious murders.com. You can also find links to all of the books that are related to this podcast entitled 
Maryland's Most Notorious Murderers, 1990-2008, Maryland's Unsolved Homicides, Volume 1. You can also find links to my local bestsellers, Junkie, H.U. Baltimore Story, Until I Get Caught, The True Story of a Serial Rapist in Baltimore, and Child of Baltimore. You can also check me out on the latest season of Payback, which airs on TV One. And you can also check me out on the Oxygen Network for Black Widow Murders, where I profiled Maryland's female serial killer, Josephine Gray. And if you really feel like dig doing some digging, you can catch me on TV One's Justice by Any Means, uh, TV One's Fatal Attraction, where I profiled the North Carolina killer, child killer, Peter Moses, or you can find me hosting Killer Kids for the LMN Network. Once the season one documentary, documentary videos are available, you will also be able to find the links to the videos uh, here at MarylandsMostNotoriousMurders.com. Be sure to tune in next week where another gruesome, another high profile homicide occurring in Maryland will be profiled, it will be examined, and it will be discussed on Maryland's Most Notorious Murders. This has been a Savage Life production.